Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. We could create balance sheets and profit and loss statement from the very beginning, but being able to interpret them and understand what's good and what's not good took a long time. In 1993, Alan Sprintz opened a brewery in Portland, Oregon. He did his brewery his way, making unique and interesting beers unlike anything he found on his local shelves. With a culinary background, he was, and is, a true artist, contrarian, and inspired creator. The hair of the dog produced beers that were, and if you're lucky enough to have some in your cellar, still are, full of flavor, high in alcohol, and complex in all the right ways. Alan and his brewery were a major part in creating the strong beer category and pushing craft beers far from fizzy yellow crap as we could get. His unique beer and attention to quality and detail took him and his brewery all over the world. He collaborated with breweries in multiple countries and sold his beer internationally. As he built his business and his notoriety, he had multiple opportunities to sell out. He turned down each of them, including the one from Lagunitas. When he decided to cease operations, drop the mic, and ride off into the sunset in 2022, he did so with a smile. Because after 29 years, Hair of the Dog closed with beer in bottles, beer in tanks, and beer deep in the heart of the visionary that created it. Thank you for joining me as I share the story of Alan Sprints and Hair of the Dog Brewing. Alan, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a bleary-eyed, hungover fuck about helping all my guests be better in their careers, which is my weird way of saying welcome to the show. So welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So I'm super fascinated to hear not only just the story of Hair of the Dog, but you know the trajectory of how the industry changed from your perspective and one of those what most people would consider beer town usa spots and so let's get right into it and just sort of give you the floor like when did you start the brewery and what was the kind of the scene or the overall feel of craft beer at that time from your opinion well i started the brewery in 93 craft beer i guess i was first exposed to it in uh, or 88 when i moved to portland and there was actually small breweries you go hang out and have a beer where the beer was made and I'd never done that before. And so when I grew up, the idea of a person actually owning a brewery was very foreign. <laughs> but when I moved here, I actually learned that uh, individuals could own breweries, although it wasn't something I was interested in at the time. Was there anybody like super cool that you met or some brewery that you kind of fell in love with back in like 89? Like I wouldn't even know who was over there at the time. Well, the, the, the famous ones, Bridgeport and Widmer and Portland Brewing were around. And so originally I moved to Portland in 88 to go to culinary school. And I um, tried to find a place in the food service industry that worked and eventually moved over to being a brewer. I was home brewing and I thought that that translated to being a professional brewer. 
And so I took my beers over to Widmer Brewing in 91, got a job there, started my brewery in 93. People go from the homebrew to the professional side, obviously as a hell of a jump. No offense, I did the same thing, but just curious, how on earth did you convince yourself that you were qualified to run a commercial brewery at that point? Well, I wasn't exactly running a brewery. When I started there, I was filling kegs. And so we would fill 300 kegs a day and I would come home soaked in beer. But working in the beer industry was uh, pretty exciting. I had come from trying to find a place in the food service industry. So I went from fine dining to retirement homes, trying to find something that would fit, you know, a lifestyle where you have a family. Most food service jobs are nights and weekends and holidays. It's real tough to have a wife and kids and to have to work nights and holidays. So I thought brewing would be more predictable and I became a brewer ended up working the third shift. So I was seven at night till three in the morning. And so I was back to those crappy hours for low pay. And that's when I decided I would make some beer I was proud of and start my own brewery. So what was the concept early on? Obviously, it's like, I'm going to do something different. So we know different today would mean not putting brownies and chocolate chips in your stout. But what was, <laughs> what was different back then? What made, it, what made your beer unique? And what, like, in other words, like, why did your brewery need to exist, right? Like, what would you do different? Well, most every brewery or brew pub had the same beers. Basically, a pale ale, a wheat beer, a stout, uh, maybe a fruit beer. And that was about it. But they all had basically the same beers. And so I thought that the beers I really enjoyed were the ones that breweries made at holiday time, usually stronger, and they were much more interesting to me. So I thought if I made those beers year round, I'd have a place in the industry. Unfortunately, uh, now I understand that making the most popular things makes it easier to sell. Nobody had heard of a 10% alcohol beer when I first started. And so trying to convince people that uh, it was beer and that it was something they should drink was uh, a challenge in itself. And maybe we're skipping forward to one of the segments in the future, but it's one of those questions when it comes up, I have to ask. So I noticed some of the more esoteric styles at bars didn't have the same pull through because, you know, guys can have one of them and then be either on to the next thing or have two and then be completely obliterated. Did you notice that it was harder to sell them to a consumer base that was used to drinking something four to six percent alcohol? Did they not buy as much? Well, yeah, definitely. That was a challenge. Uh, I had bar owners tell me it wasn't fair to make beer more than 5 or 6% alcohol. That if somebody wanted to drink something that was 10% alcohol, they drink wine and that they would never sell my beer. Uh, I definitely had accounts that were selling lots of beer, tell me they didn't want to carry it anymore because their guests fell asleep at the table. Bars definitely considered that how many uh, can somebody buy? You know, that wasn't the way I approached it. I was trying to provide something that was unique and different. And I thought all the bar owners would try to share that with their customers, that everybody was trying to celebrate the world of beer and uh, discover new things. But unfortunately, that's usually only one or two people in every state. Yeah. Most bar owners just want to sell the most popular things. So it was tough. Uh, and when I started, a bar would have five or six tap handles and maybe one or two for a microbrew. And so they were already occupied by the, the popular microbreweries of the time. So I was bottle only and trying to get people to drink 10% alcohol beer was definitely tough. I'm looking forward to uh, the next three segments. I'm going to open one of your high alcohol beers for each segment. So people who have listened to the show for a while know I don't normally, quote unquote, I guess, drink during the show. So we'll see how I hold up with 10% alcohol beer as a 
now ex-industry professional, but I'm excited to try them for sure. The concept of the show obviously is to educate some of the new generation and some of the existing people. So I'm curious, was there anything that you could do at that point to sort of combat that? You know, the issues you were having with bar owners and being something so different and outside the box. Did you have any like, creative and fantastic ways to overcome that? Well, I think the most common way is that breweries produce a range of normal beers and then they might do one or two things that are special, at least back in the day, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, breweries really 10 new beers every month. Uh, and so that wasn't the thing back then. I was, uh, I guess, not very smart when it came to business. And so I understood beer and what I liked. Uh, it's easy to forget that not everybody is a beer aficionado. Most people just think of beer as something to drink. But I was quite immersed in the beer world, and I thought everybody shared those feelings. But I was naive. and I would have known what I know now, I might not never have started because it was a lot of years of sacrifice and not making enough money to pay myself and hard work. But I can be very proud now. Looking back now and the fact that the beers we produce, not many breweries can say they still produce the first beer they released. And it's still one of the most popular beers that we make or made. No, that's definitely unique. I think it's really cool. This is one thing that I tried to do was to not really have a flagship, which I guess you definitely have when you produce the most of, but not to have that low ABV throwaway can in the store, 18 pack flagship. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting more into that. I did want to point out, I think it's interesting. One of my goals in this podcast when I get to 100 is interviews is to really go back and look at some of the overlap. The fact that you came from a culinary background and that you had sort of an appreciation for flavor and dynamic pairings, well, kind of like what we would think of is like everyone got in the industry that way. More and more of them have not. But more of the people that I have interviewed for this show have the same kind of palate and just sort of so so maybe that's the problem. We're just we like flavor and food too much. I don't know. We'll see. Curious to find out. How did you figure out or decide upon your your lineup? Like obviously you you still brew the first beer you ever made. It was the only beer we made for almost two years. Mm-hmm. So we only had one beer for two years. Really? And then I released the second beer. Uh, and then another year later I released the third beer. And so it was about a beer a year. Stopped making that second beer probably 10 years in, something like that. Just wasn't very popular. But then I, I started making it more in the last seven or eight years, we started making it again. And I think the drinkers caught up with the beer. So <laughs> it was much more popular, probably at least the second time. Which one was that? Oh, Rose. It was a, a Belgian triple inspired beer. At the time when I first started making it, I used beets and pink peppercorns. Very Belgian triple, but it had candy sugar, and I, I enjoyed drinking it. But yeah, it wasn't as popular as the beers. The Fred was the third beer we released uh, and became our most popular beer uh, for a long time. Fred was a beer writer who was here in Portland, and so he was a great guy and a great guy to remember and honor. Taught a lot of people about brewing beer from grain and about beer styles. And you, I think on your website, credited him with being a big inspiration for why you started the brewery and then really kind of dug into it, correct? Yeah, he was a member of the homebrew club I was a part of here and very inspirational. He always have uh, fantastic stories, places that he visited and the beers he drank and would bring back beers from his travels. And it was interesting tasting beers from other places. So how did you decide what you were going to put for equipment? My understanding is that there wasn't all um, 
specifically from a brewing company that had built it from scratch for you? No, I mean, at the time, there really wasn't that big a choice of commercially built equipment. Most of it was larger than what I was conceiving. But I was, you know, like I said, very naive and came from the homebrewing world. So homebrewers are very do-it-yourselfers. I put together the equipment that I needed from food service industry or from used equipment. And I had dairy tanks and a steam kettle from the food service world. Uh, and away I went. What? Yeah, ingredients were definitely harder to get. We didn't have a yeast brink, and so I'd have to build a starter culture for my yeast. A few days before, we brewed the actual batch of beer. And so there was a lot of work, extra work associated with the brews that I don't have anymore. But uh, at the time, and, and still, brewing was the fun part of the industry. And so staying small, brewing uh, four barrels at a time uh, meant we could just brew more times in, instead of investing money in equipment. Yeah. And so I always wanted a company that I could wrap my arms around. I never really wanted to have a beer factory. And so brewing in small quantities uh, was kind of a goal, keeping the company small and making things on a more personal level. And was there ever a time that you had to brew so many times that you questioned that logic? <laughs> well, for a lot of years, I brewed by myself 24 hours in a row every week. Really? And uh, well, if you want to have enough time to bottle and clean, you can't really spend more than a day or two brewing. And so I used to brew five times in 24 hours to fill up a 20 barrel fermenter. And it's one of the reasons that we were able to pull our head out of the debt that we created from the beginning was because we were able to brew larger batches and sell it across the country to different distributors uh, instead of trying to just be a, a small micro or a, a pub here in Portland. So was that the plan from the beginning to distribute nationally or was it mostly to do on-site pub sales? You know, I, uh, I guess I didn't really think enough about the whole thing. I thought that we would be able to sell enough beer in Portland to keep us going. We wouldn't need distribution. Uh, we decided that uh, we definitely needed some help selling the beer we made. Uh, we had probably five to 10 distributors in the first couple of years and sold beer all across the country and exported some to Europe and some to Asia. We made strong beer and so it was hard to sell too much in one place. So we spread it around. I kind of learned the same thing. We made mixed culture beer. It was sort of the same problem that you know, I couldn't sell at a gas station. So it needed to go far and wide to those pockets of places that worked well. And although that probably changed for you later, I'm sure in the beginning it was like that quite a bit. Question, you kind of, you know, if I'm a new brewery, considering, you know, following in your footsteps, kind of glossed right over, I got five distributors. Like that, that couldn't have been an overnight process. How did that work out? Well, when I was uh, starting back in 93, there were about 500 breweries in the entire country. And so distributors were interested in finding new small companies to, to distribute. Uh, and I think the beer spoke for itself. So I was able to sell or send samples and it was unlike anything they'd had before. And so there was definitely those distributors that believed in what we were doing and recognized what we were doing. You know, if you've never tasted a beer from uh, Europe, you don't really understand what those beers can be like. But if you have, then you recognize quality when you taste it. And so for a long time, I thought having good beer would be enough. And in some situations, it was. We got critical acclaim very early on. Articles were written about the brewery. 
uh, beer writers talked about the beer. People seemed to really be impressed by it. But uh, I learned that good beer is not enough. And so there are a lot of other factors that play into are you going to be successful or not? We didn't have enough of those factors. It was a glorified hobby for most of my career. That was one of the mistakes that I actually put in my book is that spending more on marketing and advertising is really going to be more helpful than just sort of leaning back on the quality of your beer. When you say you learned it, I'm just curious where their roadblocks, where their interactions with the distributor or retailer or customer that really sort of drilled that home and, and helped you learn that? Or did you just mean kind of throughout the years you've picked it up? It was definitely an observation of the industry. I saw other brewers who I knew their beers weren't as good as mine doing much better. And so it became quite apparent that the quality of the beer was not the, the most important thing. And like I said earlier, most people who drink beer, it's just something to drink. It's not in their world. And so uh, most people don't recognize uh, the difference. If it's uh, reasonably priced and it's reasonably drinkable, it's perfect. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the best beer you've had. I always kind of made that argument that I've never actually met anybody who drank down a Budweiser and just like, you know, that flavor is amazing. Most people in the United States don't care. They they want a beer that is just sort of the backdrop of whatever else is they're, they're doing with their friends and family, wherever they're at. So it's harder to sell something that's full flavored, tastes good, and, and God forbid you may have to educate the consumer about why it's different and better. But I do think if I'm yep. hoping we get to in the end, I do think that that's good, that is a big part of why you can look back on your career with pride. And so um, I'm interested to hear how that turns out for sure. I guess let's talk about more or less where the industry was up until maybe like, oh, f- what, where did you see it dramatically shift? Let's say that. So when you started, uh, you know, I, I definitely was drinking at that time, but I was also learning in my palate. So at that point, what I remember is imports were sort of the strong beers. They were the ones that had the most flavor. They were the, you know, the Belgian ones that had these very simplistic and traditional style labels, but, you know, solid beers every time you had it. And there came a point in the industry where people stopped respecting that. And I'm curious if, if your head was down brewing beer during that time and you popped up one day and realized it, or if you really kind of saw that transition happen. And, you know, I'm sure Portland was a little bit different, but where did you see that transition and, and why? When I was a teenager, I was, you know, going to house parties and all my high school friends were drinking Budweiser or something like Budweiser. And I never understood why or enjoyed any of that beer. And then my father exposed me to imported beer, and I discovered a world of beers that not only tasted a lot better, but had romantic pictures on the labels and the idea of brewers in these far-off countries making a beer and then shipping it to the States uh, was was interesting. Um, And I also learned that if you went into a beer store with $20, uh, you could buy a case of beer, even if you were 16 or 17 years old, because nobody spent $20 on a case of beer back then. A case of beer was $5, and they were you were crazy if you spent $20 on a case of beer. So I was able to get a huge understanding of imports before I was legal to drink. <laughs> before I was out of high school, I had a huge collection of beers and understood the difference between German and English beers. But the kind of uh, went in the back seat for a while. After graduating high school, I, I didn't have a lot of money, and so... I couldn't afford to drink the kind of beers that I enjoyed. Uh, but I moved to Portland in 1988, and that's really when I discovered small breweries. I guess even in 87, uh, Mendocino 
was brewing. And I guess I should mention that I went to the very first tasting of Sierra Nevada in Los Angeles in 1980. Really? Uh, King brought down beers uh, before he actually had labels finished. And that kind of got my imagination going, but it really didn't focus me at the time. But the idea that somebody in this country would make a beer that somebody in Europe was envious of uh, was a, such a foreign idea that uh, I never thought anybody would, would be envious of American beers. But Ken uh, really was the first one to show me that there was a, a potential, there was possibility. Pale Ale, the Stout, the Porter, all the beers he brought were fantastic. Uh, you know, very fresh. And at the time, I don't think I'd ever been exposed to beer that was that fresh or that well-made. I'm sure that his equipment wasn't very high-tech at the time, but the beer was very well-made and quite enjoyable. Uh, so that was a nice trajectory for me. I never planned on opening a brewery when I moved to Portland. I was definitely focused on the food world. Beer was rampant here, and uh, it was quite enjoyable to go after school to the Bridgeport dock and have a piece of pizza and a beer and enjoy cask beers made right here in Portland. And so cask beers were only something that I had read about in books. They weren't something that I'd actually experienced. And so it was um, an everyday thing. I think people here in Portland appreciated good beer and handmade things. And that's one of the reasons that I was able to survive because even though my beers were very obscure and different, the people here supported me and I was able to uh, make a living and work my way out of the debt that I you know, brought on when I first started. You just brought that up and I realized that I have an empty glass. So I think I'm going to go get one of those yours. I'm going to put it in a glass. Have you tell me about it. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbiz.com right now, creating your account and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brew bids, and get busy making beer. All right, well, welcome back. So I have this thing called a conundrum sitting in front of me, and um, I'm going to have to use your help. So I need you to tell me which one to open first. I'm going to do all three. But I do want to note that me being an idiot, but also I think it's funny, I had messed up my whole time change thing. And so the different central time versus the East Coast, West Coast. So I thought that I was going to have to drink these barley wine and high alcohol beers at 10 o'clock this morning. And I'm <laughs> thankful to learn that it was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Not that I couldn't have done it, but that changes things a little bit. So I've got a Doggy Claws from 05. I've got a Maja from 2019. And then the Side by Side from 2017. And I'm going to let you pick which one I open first. Uh, probably Maya. So while I'm opening and pouring it, if you want to tell us what this is and what the inspiration was, I would appreciate the help. Maya was a collaboration with a Swedish brewer called Omnipolo. I um, met them at a beer festival in the Netherlands and uh, real nice people. The uh, One of the owners, his idea was a maple muffin barley wine. And so we used lots of maple syrup, lots of vanilla, uh, aged in wood for uh, about a year and a half. And um, I call it a maple vanilla barley wine. 
It's a little departure for me. I didn't do a lot of pastry beers, but it is, I guess, one foot in the pastry world and one foot in the uh, old school world. It's still a balanced, drinkable beer and not overly sweet. Uh, some people, uh, when you hear the name, you think it's going to be overly sweet. But I'm real proud of the way it came out. Especially as a collaboration with Omnipolo, there's definitely one that did later go on and do a lot of those overly sweet ones. But it works for them, and that's that was a fantastic business model. I also am not normally a fan of those styles of beers. This is more subtle. This is something like, you know, not to compare it to another brewery necessarily, but this is what I would imagine that Chimay would make if they were going to add some stuff to theirs. Um, you know, <laughs> it's there, but it isn't overpowering. The, the, enough on the nose. It makes it, like, I definitely smell the maple syrup. Well, it was a nice collaboration, I think, between the two breweries. I have a feeling this is this is a high ABV, isn't it? Yeah, I don't remember offhand, but I, it could be like right underneath the name Maya, the 10. bottom there. 10.8, yep. So I've been to Sweden to hang out with those guys. Uh, I'm planning another trip to brew. They have a, a beer church now. Some younger brewers have recognized uh, my beers, and he came up to me at a festival in the Netherlands and uh, brought his beers and was very uh, shy about sharing them, but uh, for no reason. He had fantastic beers. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So since I'm looking at this label of the three, this is by far the brightest, but they all have pretty consistent branding. Uh, how did you decide upon your branding, Mr. Sprints? Well, I hired a very qualified graphic artist uh, firm when we first started. So they did the very first label. Uh, Adam, this okay. was the very first label. This one's batch 46, so it's probably a few years in. They've done a really great job of keeping that consistency. And I know that's an important part of marketing is uh, having that consistency. So I didn't want the beer to look like it was brewed. Yeah. So a lot of people come here. And they ask me, is this the only place the beer is made? They, they think by looking at beer that it's made in a large facility and not just 120 gallons at a time. So was that a challenge uh, in the beginning to write the check for that? Something that wasn't, you know, as a culinary guy, right? You're like, now I'm writing a check for someone to effectively like spray paint the, the asparagus on the plate, right? It's, I don't know, would, was it uh, hard to get there? It, it definitely it definitely pays to hire professionals when you need to. So that's one area that I think that you need to. Legal is probably another area that I, I don't think you should try to do yourself. Best to hire professionals to do that. And I was lucky. My uh, original partner knew these graphic artists. They were just starting out. And so they were able to work with us on a lower fee scale than uh, if we had just hired the name brand graphics firm. So they've been my, I guess, favorite vendor of all the vendors that we've ever had. They've you know, not only done what I've asked for and more, they think about ways to improve what they've done and then say, hey, we want to make some changes to the label just because we think it would be a little better. They've helped keep the graphics consistent. That particular label, uh, we gave the graphic artist from Omnipolo, who's also one of the owners, some of the labels and said, you come up with an idea. So he kind of turned the dog on his head like the dog was in outer space. If you look at the background of the label, there's all kinds of alien uh, UFO icons. And so I, I think this beer is really out of this world. Oh, good one. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes great too. So one question that I realized I did not ask in the first segment that I wanted to know, what did you do for the location? Did you rent, buy, or beg? What, had you, what, what was your decision? The first uh, location, I was in for 17 years uh, renting. 
It was uh, about maybe 6,000 square feet. It was a drafty old building that was uh, freezing cold in the winter and blazing hot in the summer. I don't miss it at all. <laughs> we had some fun times there, but I, I really don't miss the building at all. Uh, I moved into this building about 12 years ago, bought this building. And so I've been building equity in the building instead of just paying rent. And this building has an actual kitchen that I can cook myself something to eat instead of having to go to Jack in the Box at two in the morning when you're brewing those five brews in a row. Yeah. Did you have food in the first facility at all? No. No, it was actually just a brewery. I didn't even really have a tasting room. Uh, We had a tasting area that we would pour beer for people if they came to the brewery. And so um, I would stop brewing and give people tours and talk to people and pour beers for them. And so my brew days got even longer uh, when I had visitors. So you would brew basically one day all the way, hoping not to be interrupted, essentially, so that you could then be open weekends and, and have a tasting room? Was like, no, uh, the tasting room wasn't open to the public. You it was do- just open when somebody called for a tour. You were able to do not a formal tasting room at all in the beginning. Did right. You no, it was just uh, bottle sales in other places. Once a year, we would do a, uh, a dock sale. And that turned into our largest month of the year. It was a huge revenue generator. People would line up for hours before we opened and stand in line for hours to get uh, the beer that we released. And the entire uh, release would disappear in, in two or three hours. And so we had two or three beers. Adam and Fred were available all the time in store. But we would do special releases. Doggy Claws started out as a special release. But definitely Maya and any of the barrel-aged beers would only be available from the brewery. Back in the day, it was only on that one day. If you didn't buy it when you were standing in line, you probably didn't get a chance to buy it ever. Hmm. When I moved to this building, I changed all that. We stopped doing dock sales. I wouldn't announce when we would release something in advance. It would just be here. And uh, I didn't think it was fair to my regular customers uh, because beer became more popular and there were people who would stand in line who really weren't drinking the beer. They were just buying it to sell. Talk to me about that. There's many people who have said that that's a time in the industry that has changed things for the worse. The whole traders and you know, remarket, secondary market. Did that come out of nowhere? Did was that something that happened in the beginning? Just was smaller, and then as craft beer became more popular, all of a sudden you'd see it more. What? How'd that come about? Yeah, definitely. It started on a, on a small scale. I think uh, it started just trading. People would trade beers back and forth. And then there were people interested in beer who weren't necessarily beer aficionados. So they didn't have beer to trade. So they had to buy the beer. And then people discovered they could actually make money (laughs) on these beers. And so they would not only stand in line, but they would pay other people to stand in line. Yeah. They had limits. They wanted to get as many cases as they could. I didn't necessarily see it as a bad thing. It just was proof that beer actually was worth more money than we were getting for it at the time. Uh, And I thought that painted a, a bright future. The fact that wine and beer, when I grew up, were so different. Wine was something that was valuable. Beer was something that was drank every day and really had no value. And I think there's uh, less of a line, definitely blurry nowadays. Is beer more valuable than wine? Some beers are more valuable than some wines. Well, so I think the other side of that argument, and I'm kind of in the middle where I, I can be honest, I don't really care. But the other side of that argument is I have heard breweries say that 
uh, at some point they're pricing the beer at what they think the value of it should be. I think Cantillon has made this quote that it's like seven, eight euros over there at Cantillon. It's 75 bucks in the United States. And they don't, they don't want it to be a special thing. They want it to be an everyday product that you could drink without having to make a big fuss out of it. So would you inherently disagree with that? Find a place in the middle. Just curious what your same point would be. Unfortunately, uh, Cantillon has no say in the matter. And so it's more supply and demand thing. When I first started uh, drinking beers, Cantillon couldn't sell their beers. And right. you know, when I first visited Cantillon, it was Jean, Jean Van Roy's father who was there. And nobody drank those kind of beers in this country. So they were available and they weren't very expensive here. But then the demand started increasing and people discovered this unusual style of beer and it became all the rage. And then you couldn't buy Cantillon anymore. You can still get it cheaply in Belgium but not as cheap as it was. But I think even breweries in this country who are trying to make beers like Cantillon makes them are having a, a difficult time. My friends at uh, Cascade Brewing here in Portland spent a lot of time and invested a lot of money in barrels and fruit and aging. And the whole kettle sour wave came over the country. And now people aren't willing to pay 20 or $30 for a bottle of, of beer when they can get it for five or 10. Cascade is struggling. Uh, and a lot of brewers are struggling. I struggled for years uh, with my strong beers because uh, for a while everybody wanted strong beer and then everybody wanted sour beer. And now it's starting to come back where the strong beers are starting to come back. But for a long time, I had to reduce the amount of beer I was producing. It took me a long time to figure that one out. Let's go right back to that. So we, we talked about in the beginning that uh, you opened in 93. Yep. 93. So there was some struggle in the beginning to kind of get traction in the market, to convince the marketplace that what you had was not only better, but worth the extra money, which so far I agree, one beer in, half a beer in. When did that change for you? Was there was there sort of a period of you know struggle and loss like everybody when you open a business and, and then a period where it just oh, maybe didn't take off or maybe just got better? How did it come to the point that it got easier for you, I guess? Let's say that. Well, I, I started the business with a partner. And we were partners for about seven years. So about 2000, I told him that I was not making any more beer, that either he had to buy me out or I was buying him out. And fortunately for me, he didn't have enough money to buy me out. So I was able to buy him out. Uh, but not only did I buy the brewery, I had to inherit the debt. And so we had a tremendous amount. And so I was able to do the work myself put my head down and just make beer and sell beer. And in uh, maybe eight years, I was able to work down all that debt and actually start making a profit and have money in the bank, pay myself on a regular basis and think about moving to another building. The fact that I was able to go from a wholesale manufacturer to a retailer really helped me. I made three times the amount of money on the same amount of beer when I moved into my new building. Mm -hmm. because I was sold across the bar and I didn't have to lose that third or whatever it is to another retailer. It also allowed us to tell the story. And yeah. so the fact that people came here and sat here for long enough to drink a beer allowed our servers to educate the consumer about what we're doing because the kind of beers we're making, you know, now they're more familiar. But when I first started making them, people used to ask me what the hell that was. So is there a lesson there with having a partner? Uh, be careful about how you choose a partner. Uh, I chose a partner because we were friends, and that's not necessarily the best way to choose partners. 
have you been able to be friends ever since? Like, did it come back later? Yeah, it took a while, but yeah, we became friends again. That's good. Uh, you don't always hear that, but occasionally you do. So that business can mess it up for everybody. I actually have a good friend of mine that like-minded. We had talked about opening a business together. And I was like, you know what, dude, I'm just, I like you, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah, you, sometimes you have to. Obviously, it probably helped with the acquisition of debt to have a co-signer, a co-founder. Was that transition tough after he left seven years later? What, what was your mindset? Just, I know I can make this work or, oh shit, what am I going to do? Yeah, I had a really deep belief in what I was doing. I knew the beers were good. I knew the beers uh, were quality. And so I had a real faith in the beer. My wife didn't really have as much confidence. I wasn't bringing home a paycheck. And so it was very difficult on our relationship. But I really believed that it, it would catch on, it would take. And, and it did. You know, like I said, critical acclaim came early on. And so that was a uh, help. The fact that beer writers, beer aficionados appreciated what I was doing. It wasn't just me thinking it was something good. Other people tell me it was something good too. But it took a little while for the public to catch up. And so I was maybe a little ahead of my time with the beer. But I can take some pride in the fact that I didn't follow the curve. I, I led I led the way. Especially in today's beer market, there's something to be said about that. We're going to get in probably more of the... Uh kind of the overall like future of the crap industry in the fourth segment. But what I am curious about, so you're obviously at this point, you're a one-man show. You maybe have assistant brewers or whatever, but when it comes to distribution, you're international, you're at all different stores throughout even the United States. How did you manage that? You know, today, the distributor is going to say, we need in-store samplings in fucking Ohio. Obviously, you're going to say no, but <laughs> how, how do you do that? How do you not, how, are we are we doing incentives for salespeople in South Florida. I'm just curious in, in different time a little bit, but yeah, no, I, I, it was difficult for me to compete on an incentive basis. I tried it here in Portland. You know, the, the one story that I tell people is that I offered my distributor $50 a keg for every keg they sold in a new account for three months and they sold zero in Portland. So how come you couldn't find one placement? Well, Newcastle was offering $75 a keg. <laughs> so Newcastle got all the placements. And at $50 a keg, I was losing money. At $75 a keg, I, I couldn't compete with that. And so that's the reality is that I'm not big enough to compete with the brewers who are paying to play. And is that illegal so, in, in uh, Oregon, the way same way it is in Texas? Well, legal is, is, a, is a curvy line. And so it's against the law for a brewery to pay a bar to sell their beer. But it's not illegal for a brewery to hire a band to play at a bar. So there's entertainment money that can be funged. And it's also okay if the distributor gives free beer and not the brewery. There's all kinds of ways around it. And so I just threw my hands up. It's like, I can't compete. I can't figure out if somebody's doing something illegal. I can't complain about it. I did everything I could to convince the business owner to carry my beer. And even that wasn't enough because they called the distributor and the distributor would deliver something different and mm -hmm. say, oh, yeah, we're out of here the dog, but we have this. Eventually, I actually took my draft sales back from my distributor and I didn't let them sell draft beer. I did all my draft sales. And if they could help out with bottle sales, that was great. But some of my best accounts actually came here. You know, market chains here in Oregon that would come here and buy 30 or 40 cases at a time on a regular basis um, just because they appreciated the beer. 
literally a retailer picking up from your dock? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's not that's not yeah. able to happen everywhere. That's badass. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So it's nice that they went through the effort to do that. And I've had people from other states do that too. People from Washington used to drive down here. People from California used to drive up here. What's the lesson there? Make make beer so great they'll drive across the state lines? It was a hard way to, to be successful. I mean, it was the only way I was successful. That support from people that believed in me really made a huge difference. But, you know, nowadays there's over 10,000 breweries. And so how do you get that kind of support? If I've taught anything in this podcast, I think I've taught that you can't. Like, we're past that point. No, it's fleeting. Uh, we just had a brewery open last week with an all-star brewer and an all-star chef who've never owned their own businesses, but have both come from very celebrated careers. And they had a line out the door when they opened, and you know I'm sure they'll do great, but not everybody's able to do that. And uh, there's so many choices. Yeah, and I, don't, I wish them the best. I don't mean that at all. But what I've seen more and more is that there's a line out the door the first day, the first week, and then the consumer's just so exhausted. They're just so tired that they, it's like, okay, it's great. I'm willing to drive across the three highways to get there. But at the end of the day, it isn't next to my house. I don't know that bartender personally. They might go back once a month after that. But the the line tends to dwindle fairly quickly. And again, I don't hope that for them. But that's what I've seen. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think at some level of uh, your beer um, interest, you're willing to drive across state lines and stand in line for a beer but at some point, you realize that you can get a beer that's as good or maybe even better down the block. You don't need to stand in line or drive a long distance to get it. Yeah. And nowadays, there's no reason not to make great beer. There's lots of examples of what good beer should taste like. Uh, when I started, that wasn't true. You know, We got skunked English beers and, and year-old German beers, and we didn't really know what fresh beer was like. But nowadays, there's there's no excuse. Oh, there really isn't. They said that... Consumers don't always want to know the difference. They don't care, but you're right. So before we take a quick break, I'm going to backtrack to something I should have asked you again in the first segment now that I'm drinking this beer warmed up and a little more character to it. I remember something online that you had said that you had a lot of learning curve in the beginning, that there wasn't necessarily like a a Siebel class for how to bottle condition a 12% alcohol beer. Uh, and this beer is bottle conditioned. You talk about this, you know, 10.8, but still talk about how you did that. Is that a different yeast, a different process? Like, what did you learn? I'm, from a production standpoint, I'm curious what you made different. Well, we add fermenting beer to the finished beer when we bottle. And so when beers are under 8% alcohol, you can more than likely just add sugar and get them to re-ferment in the bottle. But once you get over 8%, it's much harder for that yeast to, to be active and re-ferment in a bottle. So adding active yeast in fermenting beer was a good way to get healthy yeast. And then a much more natural way of doing it, not adding corn sugar, adding beer. But mm-hmm. you deal with Mother Nature. And so we do have undercarbonated, overcarbonated. And so we've had a little harder time over the years with consistency, with a natural refermentation. But I think when it works, it works really well. And it helps those beers continue to improve over a 20-year period time in or maybe more so yeah the mind is a good example of when it works well yeah and i tried to explain yeah. to a few customers once because uh, we bought we conditioned everything as well keg condition bottle condition and i was like you don't you don't understand like the bubbles are softer fake co2 shoved in it's fine it does its job but there's a difference and just the glass over stairs that i continually got i'm like all right never mind i'm not gonna say this anymore 
It's better. Shut up. It's better. No, half of my speech was about bottle commission beers. And so, yeah, a lot of people, they don't really care about how it was bottled or anything like that. But it does help, I think. And so my intent from the beginning was to make beers that improve with time. And bottle conditioning, I think, is one of the key factors in that. And well, this one's what opened the next beer that you recommend. But once again, I'm going to take a quick walk around the block. I'll be right back. Okay. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right. So I finished that beer and I currently have a doggy claws and a side by side staring me down. And again, I just, I just need your help. Which one should I open? Maybe the doggy claws. The side-by-side is really, really good, and I know you'll be able to finish tasting with the side-by-side. Dyke was, I really enjoy it, but yeah, I think it's maybe better between. And this is bottle-conditioned also? Side-by-side, yeah. The amount of times that I would expect to open a barley wine bottle-conditioned that actually has CO2 in it. <laughs> and granted, I, I live in Texas, and so I've said this a few times, but if you ever get the opportunity to come to Texas and just kind of drink like the local beer, I recommend you go just about anywhere else. Cheers. Cheers. I guess I have to open another one. I'm just going to sniff it because there's something in there that it's like a, like, like that. It's like a dark cookie. It has uh, some uh, wildflower honey in it mm. to give it a little more alcohol about the heaviness. That's what I smell. So, yeah, it's I, behind all that malt. And so, or like kind of beside it. It's like a lot of hops. I don't arbitrarily give out compliments and I don't drink a lot of barley wines. So take that for what it's worth. But the few that I've had tend to be. More on the booze side, less on the like slow fermentation side. And I, I don't appreciate high alcohol beers for the point of having a high alcohol beer. Take that for what it's worth. I'm not, I am definitely not your target market. But this is a balanced and smooth, just pretty fucking amazing product. So if you're listening, Thanks. there's still some of these available on the website apparently because that's where I would remind. <laughs> there is. We're, we're doggy claws heavy. That's pretty badass. And this is an 05, which is ridiculous. I forgot about that piece of it. So that beer is, math's not my strong suit, what, 17 years old? More, yeah, more than 15. That's amazing. So great job. So Thanks. as this warms, I'm sure we'll have some more comments, compliments, and uh, questions about it. But let's talk, obviously, so you buy the building in 2010, move to a new facility. That's a big financial decision, right? 2010, oh, yeah. there's maybe 16, 1700 breweries in the United States. So in your defense, that still sounds like a pretty fucking genius idea. I opened a year after this uh, in my brewery. So you were ahead of me in every conceivable way. But at that point, what did you see coming when you were like, okay, I'm going to buy the building. I'm going to open a restaurant. What did you envision the next 12 years looking like? Definitely shelf space getting tougher to get. Mm -hmm. And so having a space where you could sell directly to the consumers 
would kind of insulate you a little bit from the distributors and from the retail wars. But at this point, you're international. I focus on just- you're all over the country and you're international. And even then you're like, right, hey, but this I, may I'd not be last. more than happy just selling beer in the tasting room. <laughs> you know, I, I'd screw my whole all my national distribution and just sell beer directly. Because it's more fun, more profitable. It's more profitable, more yeah. profitable uh, and easier. You don't have to go through all the hassle that is associated with shipping beer and worrying about getting paid from a distributor and all the things that you have to do as a business. Selling directly to the consumer and getting paid immediately, cash flow every day. Yeah, that was definitely nice. And I think a lot of breweries found that truism. And so now you find breweries that have three or four tasting rooms. I never had a desire to have more than one, but I've heard a lot of bar owners complain about breweries that have seven tasting rooms. You know, I'm not going to sell their beer anymore because they are competing with me. As they are. And at that point, they're definitely doing that. So I'm curious. I'm uncomfortable. You don't want to name names. I'm going to only because I put it on Facebook recently. I saw that uh, Great Notion was opening a tasting room in California somewhere. They bought like, so basically I think it was. They bought the torpedo room from Sierra Nevada, right? Right. So Sierra Nevada was like, oh shit, let's get the fuck out of here. We don't want to be in this place anymore. And they're like, Oh, like oh a, we can make this work. Or in San Francisco? Yeah, well, it's a new generation. And so more power to them. Uh, they're definitely, I think they have three or four places here in Portland. They've got places in Seattle. And maybe they, they're the kind of brewery that could open everywhere. That wasn't the kind of business that I wanted. I think that um, the beers are a little different. The Great Notion beers are for maybe people who aren't beer aficionados. They're just getting into beer. They don't really know what to expect from a beer, and so they rely on the flavors they enjoyed growing up. Sour gummy bears, uh, cereals that are all kinds of crazy flavors. Great Notion makes a lot of those kind of beers. I don't think I've said this on the podcast before, but when I did go to Portland to support my distribution point blank, I had asked some people that I knew at my local distributors here in Texas, like, hey, where do you guys think I should go? And if you want to bring anything back, I'm happy to do that. And the one guy was like, dude you got to get me whatever you can from Great Notion. And so I went there, second or third day, I don't remember which, and I sat there at the bar. And again, I am not their target market, as you've just explained. That's not what I go to a bar trying to drink. And I ordered a flight of everything that they had. And I was just, I didn't finish it. I was like, what in the fuck is going on? And But again, it's not for me. <laughs> and then I asked, like, hey, my buddy about in Texas runs a distributorship in Dallas. And he's, he asked me for whatever you guys have to go. And they're like, they laugh and they look down their nose at me and they go, we, we only release beers on Tuesday and today's Thursday. What, what are you talking about? Why would I know that? I'm just asking if you have beer to go. <laughs> you have a fucking crawler machine four feet from me. You're not going to put anything in it. You have drafts up. It's like, no, we don't do that, which is fine. I just think there's a better way to handle it. So not to shit on them, but I did just shit on them. <laughs> I'm definitely not their target market. But so let's talk about when you moved to the new facility, obviously there was a, there was more money needed, right? So what did you do? You did, I, I assume you didn't just have that in savings or you didn't liquidate your Microsoft holdings and decide to buy a building. Well, most of it I had in savings. I definitely had built up uh, some money in the bank that I thought would be enough to make the move. Turns out it wasn't. And I got some uh, money from family who lent me some money. Uh, the, the contractor I hired failed to pay any of his subcontractors. And so I was literally sued by 
all the subcontractors for more money than I had originally agreed to pay the original contractor. And so it's like I had to pay for the build the build out twice. And that would have killed me if I didn't have some family money to help along. So yeah, that was a real eye opener. I could have lost the business pretty easily. But you muscled through it. How long did it take you to renovate the building into what you needed to be for a brewery? It was like it was like six months. I think we opened in twenty ten. Did you just move your four barrel system over there? Yep. Yeah, yeah, we still use the same system. I bought a, a 60-barrel tank. At the time, IPA was very popular, and we were selling a lot of IPA. And so I bought a 60-barrel tank, and I brew 12 times into my 20-barrel uh, fermenters and move all the 20-barrel tanks into the 60-barrel the and then bottle 500 cases at a time. So at this point, obviously, you're not brewing in 24 hours straight because you can't make 60 barrels worth in 24 hours on a four barrel. No, but I can brew uh, twice in one week and once the week after. So I could brew eight times in a row and I had water to the brew. So it was one of those high gravity brews. I could water down a little bit, but yeah, I ended up making enough on a regular basis that kept us going. The IPA was king for a long time. So obviously in the beginning, you made beers that were, I don't want to say anti-IPA, but in a way, they, they've got malt, they've got character. Hops are there, but it's more aromatic than it is, like lingering bitterness, at least the one I've tasted so far. And so at some point, why does that guy make an IPA? Which isn't wrong. I'm just curious. Those are the kind of beers that I drank. And so um, it was probably in the 90s, I guess, I started making small beers from the bigger beers. So I do second runnings from Fred. And make an IPA out of the second runnings, five or six percent alcohol. Uh, we called it Ed. It was half of Fred, uh, <laughs> and we did very well with, with Ed for for a long time. But then we needed more Ed than we could make because we couldn't make enough Fred. So I had to create a beer that was separate from Fred. And so Blue Dot became our new IPA, and uh, I could brew as much of it as I needed. And for a long time, it was definitely a breadwinner. What were the hops on it? I'm just curious. I'm not an IPA guy. When I started with Blue Dot, I think it was Warrior and Amarillo, I think. It was so long ago. I was in the 90s. <laughs> when did you stop making it? Just when we closed the brewery. Okay. It was still one of the most popular beers that we made. Okay. Yeah, I started doing a, a triple IPA and a single IPA as well. So we had three IPAs in cans uh, that we did on a regular basis. And then uh, uh, three or four bottled beers Fred and Adam Dye Claws, and then usually at least one barrel-aged beer that we bottle a year. When we moved over to this building, we made enough money in the tasting room to pay the rent, and everything we sold wholesale was just gravy. When you say rent, did you actually make a separate LLC that owned the building and then make your brewery rent it from the LLC? Yeah. So that's what intelligent business people do. So people in the beer industry aren't supposed to know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) My uncle was a big help. He was the one that lent me the money when we had all those issues, and he was the one that helped me uh, get the building. My LLC still owns the building. Hair of the Dog rents it from them, and now Hair of the Dog will sublease it to another brewery to operate their vision of the future. And so hopefully in the next few months, uh, they're going to buy most of my old system uh, and have a, a tasting room here for their beer. It's a small brewery that's been doing kind of contract brewing for three or four years here in Portland. And uh, they've never had their own brewery, but now they'll have their own brewery and their own tasting room and hopefully uh, become real successful. I do want to backtrack slightly, and then I want to get back to this, but I, it's been a while since I've gotten the opportunity to shit on canning operations. So did you buy a canning line or did you 
go to mobile no Canada. there's enough uh, mobile canners here in portland all right and so, so i had a choice of three different mobile canners so I've, I've done the math on mobile canning a few different ways from an ipa perspective pilsner perspective any of those what i would consider like everyday abvs i, I can't find how it's profitable so i'm curious based on your spreadsheet did you find mobile canning to be a profit center or an advertising loss? <laughs> no, I definitely made money. It wasn't a lot of money. I think I was making $20 a case on beer. Did you distribute it? Uh, after it was set up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Through a yeah. distributor or yourself? Through a distributor. Okay. Yeah. And we sold it in other states too. So, yeah, we were making $20 a case. It wasn't the cheapest IPA on the, on the shelf. And that was maybe one of our issues is that... The cheapest IPA probably sells the most. Do you call it the case price was? Or to the distributor. Yeah. Could have been fifty bucks a case, maybe, mm-hmm. to the distributor. Yeah. I mean it's been <laughs> it seems like a year, but it's only been six months since I closed. <laughs> it was Valentine's Day when you announced it, I believe, wasn't it? It was. It was. I was just uh, thinking about trying to do it on maybe another post on Valentine's Day. It's been a long year since I announced that. But it was, I think, a smart decision to announce that we were closing. And give people time to come here and say goodbye and enjoy the beer and not just say we're closing on Friday, like so many breweries do. Yeah, because you guys didn't close till July or something like that, I think? Yeah, yeah. It was the end of June, I think, we finally ended up closing. And then we reopened it at the end of uh, July just for the Brewers Festival, just for a weekend. Really nice to have that time to say goodbye to people. So many, so many people were so nice and generous in, in those last days. And it uh, gave me a lifetime of memories. So that was really nice for me. And most brewers don't get that opportunity. Their owners say we're closing and they're closed that that week. But yeah, it was really nice. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get the whole story before I need another beer. But I would like to hear, obviously, a big part of our podcast is why you decided to do that. And for me, also, importantly, why you decided not to sell the assets. And, and maybe you're doing that in a different way by being able to lease it to another person. And obviously, what happened? Like when when was the breaking point throughout this whole exciting, fun, culinary beer experience that you're just like, oh, fuck y'all, you can have beer back, I'm out. <laughs> well, I'd always thought that I would retire about 63. And so when the pandemic started we closed and we were closed for a year and a half completely pandemic closed. completely closed we sold mail order i think we did some dock sales uh, but that was about it so it was a tough time and then reopening uh, life was different after the pandemic trying to open food service establishment there wasn't enough people trying to find uh, workers was was really really hard and the fact that the costs would go up on such a regular basis it was hard to keep up with that. And so it just wasn't as easy as it had been. And so combination with the fact that I was ready to retire, uh, things were getting more difficult. I have three sons and there was a time where I thought one of them might take over the brewery. Didn't one brew for you? Oh yeah. One of them really helped me a lot in the kitchen and in, in the brew house. But you know, that just exposed him to how difficult it really is to run a brewery. <laughs> and so he knew he didn't really want to work like that. And so if it was something that I could have just turned over to him uh, and it was easy to operate, might have been a different story. But he needed to have the same passion that I had when I started to run this business. And you just don't inherit that passion. 
he still doesn't know what he wants to do when he grows up, but he's a hard worker and I know whatever he does, he'll be successful. And so my youngest and my oldest sons are both teachers and uh, they really enjoy what they do. And I, that's all I wanted from all of them was that they enjoy what they did and they didn't have to necessarily follow my footsteps. Because obviously you enjoyed it when you did it, right? So that's the whole point. Like you want to pay that forward, oh, yeah. not necessarily the job forward as our parents' generation did. Yeah, but I didn't want to work for my father. He had his own business. And what did he do? I worked with him a little bit. He was a printer. My dad was a mechanic and uh, he thought I was going to take over his mechanic business. And I turned wrenches for like a summer. I'm like, you can fuck off. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, life goes on and... Um, who knows? He talked about being a kind of a gypsy brewer where he travels around and work for breweries uh, around the world. Uh, and I definitely have contacts and he has contacts with breweries that he probably could do that for a while. But when I grew up, uh, I think everybody was focused on having a career and buying a house and having a car. And now things are different. You don't need to have a car. You don't need to have a house. You don't need to have a career. And so uh, I can't necessarily compare the way things were, the way things are. If you instill in your children the message that they should be happy before a career, and then that's more important in my in my personal opinion than it is to say there's some traditional value that we all have to follow and some structure of society that we all have to adhere to. Yeah, I think I think so. Some Sorry. floaty stuff. That last beer, Mark. Yeah, you didn't tell us where it was. What were you drinking? I was drinking a Belgian beer from Destruce Panapot Reserva. Uh, very nice beer, uh, but yeah, it's got some. Got some floaty, chunky things in it. I don't necessarily hate that as long as it uh, is more yeast and protein driven when you can't define what it is because there was like marshmallow puree in the fucking boil or something. Uh, <laughs> that's different. <laughs> well, I have a bottle of Matt over here that's looking at me that I think I might drink the bottle of Matt. All right. Well, I have the side by side that I cannot have until the next segment. So let's take a break so we can get to that next segment right now. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back and I'm on my third beer. And this one's the darkest one yet. So can you tell me what is Side by Side? Side by Side was a very exciting project that I did uh, some years ago with a Dutch brewer and a Japanese brewer. And my idea was that I wanted to blend together the cultures from three different breweries. So I told each of these other breweries that we would make a beer, make one of their beers. So the Dutch brewer, De Molen, brewed uh, Helen Verdomus, one of their popular beers, uh, a lot of brown malt. The Japanese brewer, Chico Konin, brewed WIBA, and we brewed them, and I brewed Fred. And we brewed them all into the same tank. And then we used yeasts from each of the breweries. So we had three yeasts, three beers, all fermented in the same tank. 
and then aged in barrels, and then blended together after aging for bottling. I think it's a true melding of different brewery cultures, uh, not just three guys standing in a room brewing a beer. Uh, and I think it came out fantastic. I'm really proud of the way it came out. Uh, the, it's kind of seamless. You really don't know where one beer stops and the other one starts. Uh, when it was young, the Dutch beer was definitely predominant. But as the years have gone by, yeah, it's one of the, my, my proudest creations. Super interesting on the back end. I, I'm definitely not like a Cicerone. I don't know what it is, but the back end has that interesting character. It's lingering as hell. Hey, uh, Helen Verdomas from Demolin is very heavy in brown malt. And so that had a very roasty flavor. And for a lot of years, it was, it was predominant. All you could taste was roast. But that's kind of gone away, and it's blended in with the background. It's aged in both rum and bourbon barrels. And so there's a little rum, there's a little bourbon, but there's a lot going on with the beer. And the fact that I could work with two other brewers that I admire so much was, you know, fantastic for me. For me, it's a brown malt, but brown malt normally has that kind of like sharp finish where it like, it'll go like deep and heavy and then kind of like pick up and give you like a scratch on the end. And with age, the scratch is gone and it's just this like super subtle falls off. So, you know, five years in bottle pretty amazing yeah time's made a big difference so i'm really really proud of that beer and two great brewers that i'm still very close friends with i just visited the dutch brewer in spain a few weeks ago he's moved from botocraven in the netherlands to uh, barcelona in spain that's a weird move why well he has a spanish girlfriend (laughs) but even in the weather weather's probably enough it's beautiful in spain all the time and the Netherlands, not not all the time. So I want to spend a little time here in the fourth segment talking a little bit about like the industry overall, like you know what you think of it, especially now versus thirty years ago, and like what you see coming. But also, I think it's interesting to just sort of see like looking back, what is one of the biggest challenges you think you overcame? Personally, from my business standpoint, not having enough money was one of the biggest challenges I overcame when I started the company. I didn't have enough money to pay for everything I really needed to pay for. And so I took on debt from the very beginning, and then I had to work my way out of that debt. And so if I didn't have to deal with all that, I maybe could have grown bigger, faster. Maybe, but if you didn't have the equipment and the infrastructure that you took the debt on to get, right? So there's that, but- But I think there's a critical mass where you can have enough money to make smart decisions. If you have too much money, then maybe you're making foolish decisions. But oh, yeah. maybe, education, <laughs> maybe education is tied along with that too. And so not only uh, more money, but more education about uh, running a business. What things are important to keep an eye on? We could create balance sheets and profit and loss statement from the very beginning, but being able to interpret them and understand what's good and what's not good took a long time. Well, it was interesting that you say that. Recently, I have reached out to some of the different colleges and certificates around the country that do a brewer certificate or somehow a like you know, an educational format about brewing and owning a brewery. And I'm surprised at how few of them have a financial track to it. And so I, I reached out to them like, hey, if you want me to come talk to these people, the least I could do is spend an afternoon explaining people like, yeah, if you don't know how to explain what EBITDA is, no one will ever buy this piece of shit you plan to build. Like you have to at least, someone's got to know what that means. And someone's got to understand that if you're going to put this on your balance sheet, 
that's going to take 3x off your sales price. So think about in the future, like what are you doing? How are you structuring it? And, and why are you doing it that way? And I was surprised to learn you have been from the 90s. So Siebel was one of the ones that was from the beginning, like the one everybody sort of knew of. And some of the different colleges around the country have added a financial piece to it. I think PDX actually has one by you guys, but Siebel does not. They do not have a spreadsheet-driven financial part. In their defense, they're like, well, we're teaching you how to be a brewer. We're not teaching you how to be a business owner. I guess that's not wrong. I went to culinary school and it was kind of the same thing. And you went to culinary school in Portland? In Portland, yeah. That's why I moved here. So it's paid off opening a restaurant and knowing how to cook. I feel sorry for business owners that have to hire chefs and don't understand how to cook. They're really beholding to other people. And so I was able to cook. I was able to brew. And I think understanding those things really well is important to owning the business. And all too many people probably don't know anything about those parts of their business. Yeah, for sure. Like the more people I interview, they know one or the other. They don't know both. And, and I'll even admit, like, I'm a huge fan of food. I cook for my family and I have for years. But there's no reality in which I want to own a restaurant. Not because I couldn't. Not because I don't have this. I don't have a skill set. But not because I don't have the understanding of how to do it. But because... It's different. I, for me, it's taking, oh shit, I just want to add some butter to this right now. Wait, that's not the recipe. So-and-so at table seven won't appreciate that because she was here last week and she's not. I don't want ever, I never want that to incorporate into my cooking. I guess there's a reality in which maybe my brewing shouldn't have had that either. I don't know. What do you think? Right. It sucks the fun out of your hobby when you start doing it for a living. Mm-hmm. And so I, people ask me what I'm going to do after I retire. And I tell people that brewing used to be a hobby. And it'll be nice to get back to this work. I have time for my other hobbies. Well, brewing wasn't my was hobby. You didn't brew that long ago as your last brew, was it? Wasn't it this summer or like later this fall? Yeah, we closed the brewery in, in June. And so I think we did some, we might have actually brewed in June or at least in May. Before I get into you telling me about why all of us are fucked going forward in the industry, I'm more curious, there comes a point and obviously you have equity in the building and that's amazing. And I think one of the most important things that a brewery owner can do today, why did you decide Valentine's Day 2022 when you announced you were going to close the brewery? Why did you decide that you weren't going to sell it? I really couldn't see somebody else making my beers. I've seen enough mergers over the years to know that even though businesses say nothing's going to change, everything does change. And I've never really seen a brewery improve after changing hands. It always slips downhill. So I wanted to preserve what Hair of the Dog has become and the hope that maybe one of these days, one of my sons or one of their offspring would want to restart the brewery. We have all the recipes. We've got all the artwork. Uh, we've got a family heirloom. That can be passed down through generations. I think that's a much better option than selling it for less than I'd want to get to somebody that I really don't like and to watch them screw up my beer. It also allows me to continue to make beers as hair of the dog. And so I can do a collaboration with a Japanese friend or a Dutch friend or a German friend and call it hair of the dog. And I would lose that ability if I sold the brand. And I, I think there's value in that. So... I can still take some pride in what Hair of the Dog makes, hopefully forever. The, the question is at that point, what did you do with the equipment? Like you had 180 barrels? 
Do you still have the barrels? Do you still have the yeah, but the, wood, the wooden barrels? Uh, we've probably got about ninety wooden barrels left, full of beer, and we're going to be doing some projects with some friends who have breweries, where we will give them our barrel aged beer to blend with their barrel aged beer, and they release them as a collaboration. And so I've got uh, three or four breweries lined up to do that. With I've got about seventy five or eighty barrels full of beer. And so depending on how many barrels each of these breweries can take, I might be looking for more breweries. <laughs> I've actually got a friend in Norway who I just talked with a few uh, weeks ago who's very passionate about getting some of the beer. And it just seems crazy that he would pay to ship beer from Portland to Norway. But it's it's pretty good beer. <laughs> and Norway hasn't exported a lot of stuff that would make us think that they've got it better than you, right? So well, the brewery's called Dogne. And so I don't know if they have that in Texas, but they've been selling beer in this country longer than I've been making beer. Collaboration with them um, like five or six years ago. They were here in Portland. And uh, one of the best beers I think I've ever made never got released until the very last days of the brewery where I just decided I had to keg some of it. And it it was just fantastic. Yeah, (laughs) it was just delicious. So nuts and bolts, right? So I'm going to wash up all has been. No one cares what I think. But let's say a young girl... 28, 29, 30, walks up to you and says, hey, dude, I'm starting a brewery making only high alcohol beers, maybe the occasional IPA. What do you tell her? She's like, what's your advice? Well, more power to you. You know, be proud of what you're making. And that confidence will translate to other people who are tasting your beer. And so when you go to tastings and you're sharing what you've made, other people will have confidence in what you've made because you're confident in it as well. So if you really believe in what you've done, you've made some fantastic stuff. So there are still beers that haven't been created that are still in people's minds that are going to fascinate people years to come. So it's great that there might be somebody else who's interested in making strong beers. By the same token, so if 2022, Alan, could go back and talk 1990, I can't even, if 2022, Alan, could go back and talk to Alan before he heard Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, what would he tell him? Like, what, what did he not know that you know that might have made you the million dollars you didn't make? The fact that good beer is not enough I guess was a little bit of a surprise. That was something I always thought was going to be enough. To be honest. I don't know how that would have helped me. Here's here's the part that sucks about that. So to be honest, for people like me and the friends that I drink with, it is. But it isn't for the broader market, which it's true. Both things are true at the same time in both situations, right? So what do you do? I know you're stuck in the middle. Yeah, I guess I do it the same way I did it. Just because it's given me so much satisfaction, it's definitely been a harder struggle. But you know what they say, the harder the struggle, the sweeter the victory. Black of the berry, the sweeter the juice. No, I agree with you, (laughs) for sure. Very proud of the fact that I kind of created, out of my mind, what we're selling and didn't necessarily have an example of what to make. And so I can take some satisfaction in the fact that I created this segment. And I think I've done a good job. At it. And so I'm, I'm real proud of it. So I would agree with you. And I think that trying to recreate that in 2022 Brewery America is at, at best a stretch. But I think I think it's interesting to note that you were able to go out on a high note. There's got to be a way that you can explain to us how that is, right? You don't have a regret. And I'm sure you have some regrets. But like ultimately, you look back on the opus of what you did. And you're proud and happy. And you're going out into the sunset with Doc Holliday, and why is that? What do you think the difference is between you 
and some of the other people I've interviewed that face depression and, and it's been a like fucking dark, bleak moment that they had to walk away from it. Well, I'd like to think it's because I didn't compromise. There were times along the way where I could have sold a portion or majority of the company to somebody else and had less of a, a worry or concern. Did you have offers uh, you also, said no to? Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely had offers we said no to. It could have been better. You know, uh, we were talking with Lagunitas about selling, and Lagunitas became a very large company. And could that have benefited Hair of the Dog? Possibly, or or possibly we never would have heard of Hair of the Dog yet. Uh, we were in talks with a brewery called Saxer here in Oregon, and the for the next week after we we hadn't come to an agreement, but we were in talks. They sold to another brewery. So Saxer sold to Portland Brewing. If we would have agreed to sell to Saxer and then Saxer sold to Portland, we would have definitely disappeared because you don't even hear about Saxer. They disappeared. And so I always wanted to be able to control my destiny to a certain point. And so I was very skeptical about mergers and losing control. And so I'm happy that I didn't do that. And then I was able to drop the mic at the end and say, I'm done. And not necessarily been forced out like would have happened if it would have merged with another company. So I still own 100% of the shares of the brewery. And it allows me to do what I want. So the other piece of that puzzle is that if you saw in the next five years, the trajectory of the craft beer industry and Hair of the Dog specifically was going to 2-3x. You'd be like, there's no fucking way I'm going to close. I'll hire some guy to make beer for $12 an hour and we'll just like reap in the profits. But I'm assuming that you don't think that the industry's got a humongous runway to Mars in the next five years. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a lot of consolidation. And so I think there'll be less companies owning the breweries that are giving us beer. So it's going to be tougher to make a dollar. But also, that was never my motivation. Profit was not the motivating factor. It was producing something that I believed in, that I came from my heart, and other people liked. I really wanted other people to like what I made. And so it has really nothing to do with the profit or profitability. So in a way, I I accomplished what I really wanted very early on. People love the beer. I could have dropped the mic way back then, and that would have been enough. I define the likability of the marketplace based on the profitability, in a sense, so that that was my metric for defining whether they were buying it and whether it was successful. I could probably take a lesson from you in the sense that, obviously, these beers are fantastic. And I'm, again, being kind of arrogant to say that I think mine were as well, but it didn't matter. The market didn't support it. I agree with you. I think as an artist, you should go out on a high note and you clearly have. I'm only going to ask you for a couple little industry questions. One, we got 10,000 breweries in the United States, maybe 9,999 now that you have uh, shut the doors, but how many do you think is too many? Where was or is the saturation point? You know, I think if you're a small brewery deserves your local community, you probably always have a space. And so maybe every little community in this country needs its own brewery. But I don't really know if that's financially viable because those beers are going to be more expensive than the mass produced beers that can be shipped across the country. For me, it was more important to connect with people who like something that was unique yeah, but those people are a few and far between. It's kind of six of one, half a dozen of another, that you have to go one way or another, and I don't know which way is best. It's really nice to be able to 
to buy beer at a reasonable price and not to have to spend $15 on a six pack of beer. And big brewers can do that. And there was a time where I thought that I was insulated because Budweiser couldn't make the kind of beers that I made. But then Budweiser bought 20 breweries <laughs> that make the kind of beers that I made. So now Budweiser can make the kind of beers that I produce. And there's no protection for me. Budweiser can make all the beers that are needed to be drunk. Uh, and so eventually they'll be able to provide them at a much lower price and probably at a higher quality than you can get from your local brewery. And do you want to support an individual or people in your local community? Or do you want to get something that's cheap? In America, it seems like the cheap wins up. At least uh, often few people want to, Yeah. But maybe that'll change. You know, unique things, it's hard to get unique things from a big company. And you can get them from your local small brewery but you, you've got to be willing to pay a little more money uh, that's a hard road to cross well to convince a consumer to do that altruistically for sure yeah it's not easy one question i ask everybody how has working this industry affected your relationship to alcohol and i know it's fairly soon after you close and, and <laughs> stopped having tasting open but for me there were there were a lot of struggles where you have events you have uh, I was I was in Portland and I, I went up there with my distributor and I'm like okay all day I'm going to sample my beer I'm going to drink a beer with the distributor rep and then I'm going to go explore breweries I can't get and so there's there's a shit ton of drinking going on how did that affect your relationship to alcohol being in the industry well, you know, I, both sides of the spectrum. I felt guilty producing alcohol that people would abuse. And so I would see people at festivals early in the morning be more intoxicated than they should be, come back in the afternoons after they had slept for a while and drink more and felt guilty that I was contributing to this alcohol. But I also feel very proud that I'm able to provide something that people use to celebrate special events. And so the most special times of people's lives are celebrated with alcohol. And uh, I'm very proud when people say, hey, we, we celebrated our wedding with you or my birthday with you or, or something like that. And so it's kind of both ends of the spectrum. I'm very proud of what I've done, but I also feel guilt in contributing to the problems that are created by alcohol. You really can't. You can't be other people's keepers. So you, ne you can't necessarily feel guilty what other people are doing. But yeah, it's definitely something to consider. You know, should you be making alcohol if people are abusing it? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's their fault. But so obviously you're drinking today, but in general, since you guys closed this summer, do you still love beer off the clock? Did it affect your relationship to alcohol at all to just have to walk away from your kind of your baby? You had the brewery before you had your kids, uh, right? No, I, my youngest son was a year old when we started the brewery. So he's a year older than the brewery. Um, my love of alcohol definitely goes way back before I had kids. But I probably drink more wine now than I do beer. Favorite varietal? Um, uh, red. <laughs> I have always loved wine. And, and some of my biggest fans are winemakers. And so uh, I was always told it takes a lot of beer to make wine. And uh, I really enjoy wine with a good meal now. And so I, I drink more wine than I do beer. But I still enjoy a nice beer. And I, I've had four of them today. Yeah, I've had three, but by some people's perspective, I've had seven. Apparently alcohol. I started drinking before you, I think. You win, for sure. Bourbon Fred from the Stone. I actually have. No, I have Fred from the Wood. I don't have Fred from the Stone. I was looking for that one. But all these beers are great. And so I will be posting on Facebook, Instagram, different social medias, me drinking some of the other ones as I get to explore to them now that I've had three of them explained by you. 
one of my favorite questions to ask everybody. We've only known each other now for like a couple hours, but who do you think is more of an asshole? Me or you? <laughs> I don't think you're an asshole at all. Well, I look forward to changing your mind, but uh, I appreciate that sentiment. <laughs> and one of these days we will meet. I appreciate you taking the time. What you have shared today is something unique and different from anyone else that's ever shared anything on my podcast. And I think it's uniquely valuable. So thank you very much. You bet. It's a pleasure. It was easy. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's to double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.